within two or three weeks after we made the investment, they released horrendous financial results, which were 40% below where they were supposed to be. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest Harvey Sawicken. Harvey, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. I'm excited to have you. And wow, what an interesting bio. Let me just introduce you to the audience. Harvey is the co-founder and co-manager of Firebird. Launched starting in early 1994, Firebird's funds were the first dedicated to the stock markets of Russia and the former Soviet Union. Harvey also co-founded the Amber Funds, which do private equity in the Baltic states. Before Firebird, he was an M&A lawyer at Wachtell Lipton after attending Harvard's law school and clerking for a federal judge. Harvey's novel about a young lawyer who becomes an insider trader was published by Simon & Schuster in 1995. He lives in Manhattan with his wife of 32 years and a neurotic 15-year-old cockapoo. Harvey, (laughs) tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this amazing world. Well, having been uh, an investor for 30 years in emerging markets and surviving probably five major crises, I think I've seen every kind of cycle you can imagine and their vicious cycles in the sense of evil. (laughs) And I think in preparing for this, I'm fortunate or unfortunate to have so many bad investments, as you can imagine, in all the countries I've invested in not to mention my own outside investing, but just focusing on Eastern Europe, that it was cornucopia of mistakes and different kinds of mistakes. So I I narrowed it down to two because I felt that they illustrated sort of more general investment mistakes that you can make that are not just made in Eastern Europe, but anywhere. Mm -hmm. So my value is a lot of time, a lot of mistakes. And a healthy ability to, and lots of self-criticism and self-reflection about what I do wrong and continue to do wrong even after learning the hard way. And just so for the audience's understanding, tell us about what is the breakdown of kind of where your investment funds are going and where your your energy is focused. Mm -hmm. Well, we started to do just Russia, but very soon after that, other stock markets of the former Soviet Union started to launch. And we were among the first investors in uh, a lot of them, Estonia, Lithuania, Kazakhstan, Romania, Georgia, everywhere that we thought had the characteristics of a good emerging market and where there was something to buy for portfolio investors, since that was our main focus. So we, we really run a regional strategy. Russia has generally been our largest market because it's the most liquid. And in the last few years, there really were a lot of great companies emerging. Obviously, the war has thrown everything out the window and changed everything. 
So right now, you know, our Russia's been marked down significantly. So it's a, it's not as big of a weighting in our regional funds anymore. And uh, but we're we're active in I think besides Russia, eight other countries, and then there are thirty others that are theoretically in our mandate that have never been appropriate for investment for one reason or another. And some of them may yet become. And the war may be accelerating that, in fact, because some of these people, oh, some of these countries have been under Russia's domination. And as they get out from under that, they could really turn into much more interesting market economies with, with stock markets. What do you see as like the brightest shining light, you know, in that sphere? Well, you have different kinds of countries. You have countries that are almost like Western Europe now, like the Baltic states, Estonia and Lithuania, and they're great. You know, you can buy what are essentially like Western European stocks now with rule of law and everything, but usually at a discount to Western Europe and usually in countries that have higher growth rates than Western Europe. So if Western Europe grows at 2%, these countries will grow at 4%. They're cheaper and higher growth. And you get all the good things of Western Europe, rule of law. But then there are the other kinds of countries where I would say, like Kazakhstan, which is a country in transition that doesn't have, you would not mistake it for Sweden, but it is, it's got massive potential. And if you catch a country like that at the right moment, as it's transforming into a, a better market economy with better rule of law, you know, the, the returns there can be quite spectacular. And I've done it several times. I mean, we've ridden up massive bull markets, not just in Russia, but in in the Baltics, in Romania, and countries that, that really converged, Georgia. So there are different kinds of, so the brightest shining light, I don't know, they're, they're all interesting in different ways. I mean, I'd say Kazakhstan is very interesting right now because there's a new president or a newly empowered president who really seems to want to finally reform and get away from sort of Soviet-style oligarchic economic activity. It's one of the only countries in, in Eastern Europe that has a population growth as well. So that's nice too. Interesting. I, I had a strategy piece that I brought out to my clients about a year ago, and I showed a picture of Kazakhstan on the map. And I said, watch this space because yeah. the amount of resources, number one, whether that's oil and gas or whether that's precious metals or whether that's a rare earth. The proximity to Russia basically means that the U.S. is really focused on how can we get this into our sphere, particularly with the exit from Afghanistan and with Russia, of course, wanting to have it in their sphere. It's And then you've got China right nearby also who needs yeah. those resources from it. It's just, uh, as I recall, it's one of the top five oil exporters in yeah. the world. And so... It definitely seems like that. there's a lot going on there. One of our greatest investments, I was supposed to be about bad investments, but one of our great investments ever is a Kazakh oil company, which is owned by CNPC. And we bought shares originally in 97 and then some more right after September 11th. And I think we paid for the second tranche, something like $8 a share. And for several years, we were getting hundred dollar dividends in the early 2000s. So, I mean, that's probably total return on that thing is probably a hundred bagger 
So Kazakhstan is really, really interesting. And as you say, it's balancing between China, Russia, and the United States in a very intelligent way. And I think it's they've been very smart. But the new president really is is a new kind of person for the country. So we'll see how that how that goes. Yeah. Well, that's part of the great thing about doing this podcast is to meet people like yourself with your expertise in different areas. So I think that's great stuff for the listeners out there. But Mm -hmm. we're not here to talk about Kazakhstan or all of your experience in these various areas. We're here to talk about your worst investment ever. And so now it's time to share it. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, there's two. One of them actually is in Kazakhstan. So I'll start with that one. This was a a bank called BTA Bank. It was a systemic institution in Kazakhstan, one of the largest banks. And it came to us because there was another, there's another fund in the region that had taken a position in it. And they were supposedly, they were very close with management and had a very good insight into how the company was going to build. It looked cheap, low, reasonable price to book for. And this was, you know, when the economy was doing very well. What happened ultimately was that the bank was essentially all the loan book was was crooked. And there was so much self-dealing. The guy who was sort of the main power behind the bank wound up being a arrested. I think he may be out of jail now in Europe and, you know, accused of misappropriating billions of dollars from the bank through bad loans and wound up the bank basically was put into, you know, bankruptcy and it was taken over by another Kazakh bank, which swallowed it. And the shareholders were almost wiped out. We wound up, I think we invested $20 $20 million. And I think we got under a million back when we were bought out. And that, and to get that, we had to like really fight hard to get any recovery at all, because basically the the bank was essentially a valueless and it was just being taken over by one of the other banks. The way, I don't know, JP Morgan took over uh, Bear Stearns, right? It was like that. That was JP Morgan, right? Yeah. So like that. And so that was one. And then the other worst investment ever was it was a private company in Ukraine called SV or Soyuz Victon. It was a vodka company. And it was brought to us and it was sort of like, this was during the period after the the original Orange Revolution when people thought, okay, Ukraine is going to be really good now. And we were very interested in getting involved in Ukraine The investment was brought to us because a very famous hedge fund in New York, I won't say their name, had a large position, had bought a position in it directly, a direct investment in a little private equity pool they had created. And they said that they had more than maxed out how much they could take. And so they were willing to sell us part of their stake. And I said, whoa, Ukraine, vodka. We had a vodka tasting and everybody liked it. And this fund, you know, it's a very well-known fund. And I said, you know, they know what they're doing. And they've drafted all these agreements with rule of uh, London, uh, you know, choice of law and all that kind of stuff. We made our investment. And literally within 
two or three weeks after we made the investment, they released horrendous financial results, which were 40% below where they were supposed to be. We thought we had been just taken by the, the major hedge fund. In fact, I wound up litigating against them until I dropped the case with the ruinous costs of litigation in England and where the loser pays. I couldn't take the chance anymore. I don't actually, in, in long retrospect, I don't think they were trying to take us. I think they were also fooled. And it was it's the Ukrainian business culture at the time, just not ready for prime time. I mean, this was this was an environment until this war, and I think this war may change things in Ukraine, but for as long every time things looked good in Ukraine, but the business culture never changed. People's attitudes were always steal. You know, if you can steal today, there is no tomorrow. That has never been the case in a country like Russia. People wouldn't believe me if I tell you that the corporate governance over the years in Russia is definitely one of the best of any country that I've invested in because they don't have the rule of law. They don't have courts. All they have is relationships. So people there, if you have a relationship there that's important to the Russian, they'll not never screw you because they need, they want that, they need that. And Russia, they always believed there was a future, that they were building to something great. Ukraine, they didn't have that kind of a culture. So we made this investment before the financial crisis. And then when the financial crisis hit, what happened in Ukraine is that they immediately, the controlling guy immediately started looting the company. He took out, for example, the IP. He took just re-registered it into a company that only he owned. And, you know, good luck. You have this hedge fund had a choice of law in, in England to litigate. Good luck. You know, good luck yeah. in getting judgment and then enforcing it in Ukraine when the courts were all corrupt. Mm. So it was a write off zero. Now, let me tell you why I chose those two out of the scores of bad mistakes I've made. They illustrate two things that I've learned are really doomed to failure. One is, for me, one is relying on someone else's due diligence and work. So in both cases, I didn't do my own tire kicking and real careful checking. Who are these people I'm investing with? What do I know about them? And we have lots of contacts in the region. I can find things out. I just didn't bother because I said, well, clearly these two very experienced funds have done the due diligence. So relying on someone else, I have found usually a mistake. And you never know what's going on. And then when stuff starts to go wrong, I called up, in the case of the Ukrainian company, I called up, what's going on? And they, they didn't know any better than we did. And I realized this is a New York-based hedge fund that had no real experience in Eastern Europe or in private equity, by the way. I, at that point, had 20 years of experience in Eastern Europe. Why the heck was I relying on them? They should have been relying on me. So big mistake. And in the other, in the Kazakh bank, same mistake. And then the second mistake that they both have in common, these investments were made at the peak of bubble, an emerging markets bubble in 2007, when, or six, seven, 
when we had money pouring into our funds, into Firebird funds, we were getting one month in 2007, I think we took in for us and a tremendous amount of money, I don't know, $50 million, $60 million. And I had a lot of FOMO or FOMU, fear of missing upside. I felt I have to get fully invested. I can't sit here with all this cash. And I lowered my standards dramatically. Uh, you know, I should have known better. It wasn't my first bubble rodeo. Uh, I'd seen it in, you know, 97 also. But that time, the 2006-2007 emerging markets bubble was so powerful that it would have taken a lot more self-restraint than we had to either turn away that money, say it's too hot, or to just sit back and hold it as cash and say, look, this is, we got to, but what I did was because the stock markets were kind of getting so frothy and we said, well, you know, the stock prices are high in Russia. I know what we'll do. We'll do a private deal at a big discount. So, and not just these two, we did a bunch of other private transactions at that time at discounts saying, okay, well, at least we're not overpaying. But then when the music stopped in 08, we got stuck. There was no, it was a bridge to nowhere. So we wound up being stuck with these things, some of these private deals. I'm still stuck with a couple of them that I've been trying to get get out of for now, you know, 15 years. And so bubble behavior like that, and that's applicable. You know, we saw it, of course, recently in the tech and venture bubble and crypto bubble where you know, money was pouring in. You had Tiger, I hate to speak ill of another fund, but this has been reported so widely. You had Tiger just basically saying, give us the money, we'll just buy anything. And supposedly they hired Bain. So they made number mistake number one. At the top of a bubble, they were trying to get invested as fast as possible. And number two, they hired somebody else to do their work for them. They hired Bain to do the due diligence on these venture companies. So that's both mistakes. So these mistakes are applicable to whatever you're in. And, and as somebody once smart once said, the problem with being inside of a bubble is that it's invisible to you. You know, you think we thought in 2006 and 07 that this was just perfect and fine and normal. It's normal that our funds are up 20 times. It's normal that everyone is pouring money to us because we're good and smart and this part of the world is still going to grow and there's no limit to it. And, you know, so I don't know if I ever get another chance to do the right thing. I will see if I if I learned from from the mistakes, but I see other people doing it all the time. Yeah. Maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away from it. The first thing I want to share is that like when when we think about investing, we think about fund managers, you know, ultimately they're risk managers and they're taking on, you know, we're all taking on risk. But when I think about what you're investing in, you know, it's like you are a, a real, you know, you have a ability to take on some pretty amazing different risks that you're not going to face if you're trading in the S&P 500. So mm -hmm. that's like my first observation, which is, you know, fascinating. The second thing is, you know, I've, I've chronicled, being an analyst, I've, I've analyzed all the different stories that have been either submitted to me or told to me, and I tried to classify them. And the number one most common mistake is fail to do your own research. 
And so this is a great example. And I use a case for CFA ethics. When I teach CFA ethics to young people, I say, you know, if you're, you're having dinner at a restaurant and there's a person sitting next to you and, and you overhear them saying, we've just added $10 million of a particular stock into our portfolio. And then you go back and you add that to the portfolio of your clients. Have you violated ethics? And the answer is yes, you have, because you haven't done your due diligence. And everybody understands how foolish that would be. And I said, but what if you're sitting in that restaurant and the person sitting next to you was Warren Buffett? And he said, I'm just investing in such and such. You know, should you just race back and buy it? And of course, what we know is that you still need to do your own work because it may be suitable for them and not for you for other reasons that you don't even see. But here we get a great example of why it's very important for every single investment that we do our own work. And other thing I, I added to that is don't overestimate the knowledge, skills, persistence of other people. Many people are at the top of their game, at the top of their industry because of many different factors. Sometimes it is, you know, an intense focus and other times it's riding a wave and all of that. So that's another thing. And then the third thing is that yeah, the most dangerous time to invest is when it is the easiest to invest. Mm-hmm. When that money's coming in, when the, when the headlines are right, reading, you know, everything's great. And when it's just, you know, who's, there's no fool out there. You're not going to be a fool when you go and tell people that I'm buying and I'm making money in this up market. Mm-hmm. Where you'll be a fool is, you know, eventually if, if you were to buy in a down market where nobody wants it and all that. So those are some of the things that I take away. Is there anything you would add to that? I mean, just recently, I remember Jim Cramer on Mad Money on CNBC. He was talking about a couple of months ago. He was he showed the ten year, no, the two two year Treasury, and he said anybody who buys this is crazy. You're going to get killed. And of course, that was the best thing you could have bought. It's you know that was at four percent or whatever. And meanwhile, he had just recommended Silicon Valley Bank, saying you know don't. Don't worry about it. But uh, something I would add to what you said before about my specific risks, and very honestly, if I tell you, you won't believe this, but the people who've ripped me off over the years most successfully, they're not Russians, they're not Kazakhs, they're not, they're not even Ukrainians, although Ukrainians are good. It was Westerners, it was Canadians, it was British stock promoters. Back in the, it was a resource junior bubble in the mid-2000s. And suddenly all these promoters emerged who were Canadian guys who got hold of a gold mine in, in Romania or got hold of an oil well in Kazakhstan. When I met with those people, my defenses were down. They were like, oh, yeah, he's not a Russian. I don't have to be so worried. And I got completely taken to the cleaners time and again, probably a half dozen major blowups of half dozen things I invested in went to zero from these promoters. Whereas with Kazakhs and Russians, you know, we're very, very, the fences are up. It takes a lot of thinking and talking and, and understanding to say, okay, I do trust this person. Our interests are aligned and here's why. Like I said, Ukrainians, that was a whole other story because of the fact that the the business culture was completely horrible. But in all the other countries, sure, I, I, I made mistakes, but you know, they were more calculated risks than some British guy who, you know, the famous Mark Twain saying that, what is it, that uh, 
a liar stands in front of a, a hole in the ground and calls it whatever. Yeah. I, I lost the, the thread. But and, and we have we at Firebird, we have certain like shorthand things as that are almost like funny, like that we've learned over the years. Like you don't ever invest with an entrepreneur who's wearing two-tone shoes. <laughs> this Kazakh guy with like brown and white shoes and yeah, that's never going to work. Uh, <laughs> like how many phones they have. That's another thing. Like if they have, nobody needs more than maybe two. If he's got four mobile phones, Something's that's not on. a good sign either. But uh, on the other hand, the best investments we ever made include things where the financials were almost non-existent. When we started buying Russian uh, vouchers in uh, January 1994, and we were the first the first people to try this, just about. And, you know, we had no, I knew nothing about the companies we were tendering for, except it was, for example, it was an oil company. It had as much oil as mobile, and it was trading for 99% less than mobile per barrel. And, you know, we liked the macro situation of the voucher privatizations, but sometimes, you know, the best things we ever invented, and because no one else would do it. I mean, right now, just as an, and I've always found to also on what you say that if I suggest an investment theme that would make most people laugh, it's definitely worth following up on. So like if I said right now, what everybody should be doing is buying equities in companies all around Eastern Europe, ex-Russia, which is what I'm doing, they would say, that's crazy. I don't want to be in a war zone. And as a result of that, the money has flooded out of the region. There's no new money coming in. Funds that need liquidity and they can't sell Russia because all Russian stocks are frozen, they have to sell other things. So we have, you know, in our fund, everything ex-Russia is valued at a PE of under five. And we have dividend yields in the double low double digits. This is the time when I think it is good, but it, you know, it would spark laughter. If, and I don't know what else you could say today that would spark laughter. Sometimes if they laugh and you're still wrong, like buying sort of uh, banks in the middle of the current crisis, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. People would laugh at you and they'd be right to laugh at you. But when I hear when I hear a really good idea and my first instinct is to recoil in horror and laughter, and then I think about it a second time and I say, wait a minute. This is really interesting. Those have been some of the best things I've ever invested in, both in Eastern Europe and and elsewhere. Mm, yeah, you made me think about in Thailand, you know, and as well as most of Asia, the corruption is kind of crude compared to, let's say, the U.S., where you know you're not going to be approached by a officer pulling you over asking you for a hundred bucks, mm -hmm. and so that. People take that to think maybe that corruption doesn't exist, but I would say the Americans kind of have got it down perfectly mm -hmm. <laughs> in the way that it's done and the way it's kind of coached or couched in, I think about Dick Cheney as an example and mm -hmm. his ability to, you know, direct funds and all that. So it made me just think that sometimes when you um, meet with ties, it may be a bit crude as well as others, maybe in emerging markets. But when you meet with a Westerner, it may be a very different type of corruption or favoritism or corporatism or some kind of collusion with government 
that just is easy to overlook. So that's a great reminder for it. So, I mean, even even on the on the books as an ex lawyer, you know, one of the things I've always been interested in are the legal systems in all these countries. And you know, on the books, shareholders have more rights in most of these Eastern European countries. And the reason is, when they wrote their corporate laws, they cobbled together some of some of the best provisions from the city, the British law and the US law. So there's things you can get away with in the United States that you can't get away with in Eastern Europe. For example, you can't buy control of a company without making a minority offer in Eastern Europe, which you can do here, unless they have a poison pill or some other takeover to, or some state. People can get away with a lot of things here that they can't in, in Eastern Europe. Of course, someone would say to me, yeah, you, the laws are on the books, but can they be, can you enforce them? The answer is, you know, the courts in Eastern Europe have actually proven to be better than I would have thought on procedural matters. So if a company is required to make a minority buyout and doesn't make it, and you just show that to the court, generally those cases are good cases. You can win. And I've seen people win all kinds of cases. So, but, you know, you don't have to rely on, you don't want to make an investment, you're betting you're not going to wind up having to sue anybody. But if you do have to, so it's, I, I think that um, it's not as clear as that. But as you say, you know, in the uh, Western markets, some of the shenanigans that go on are incredible. I mean, if you look at uh, what's just happened in the banking sector here, you know, we have our largest sector weighting is banks because in Eastern Europe, because if you want to play the growth of an economy, usually the bet in an emerging market, usually the bank is the best way. Mm -hmm. And all the banks that we invest in, they're all systemic banks in their countries, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Romania. And the, the level of regulation and oversight that they have is very, very strong. It's like JP Morgan Plus. And you know, there are certain advantages when you get into the developing world. People don't realize their advantages, but they don't understand, you know, that especially the countries that want to do well, they will be very, very... Banking crisis is, is a disaster. It sets you back five years minimum in an emerging market. So they're doing everything they can to prevent that. So our banks in Eastern Europe, everything's marked to market. They don't have any held to maturity securities or very, very little. When interest rates went up last year, their profits went up, not down. Everything's marked to market. So, and capital ratios are higher and everything is loan to value is not as aggressive. So yeah, it's an know, that's one of the advantages. But I, I want to come back to Ukraine for a minute, just because I don't want to leave this talk and leave with a bad... And, and in fact, I've, I've made... Before the war started, I used to say about Ukraine that I've seen a lot of Westerners try to succeed in Ukraine. And the only thing they ever, the only, these guys ever succeeded in doing was marrying a woman who was like way out of their league. Because <laughs> Ukrainian women are brilliant, beautiful, and they're with guys who would not have a chance in any, <laughs> anywhere else. But I would say that what is happening now under Zelensky is really exciting. And I think that if when this war is over, if Ukraine survives, as I think it will, he's going to use the, the post-war boost that he has to finish 
pushing through these reforms. And they've already done a lot. They've kicked out a lot of the oligarchs, reduced their power. I didn't say not kicked out, but they've reduced their stranglehold over certain industries. Next, they have to fix the judicial system. But he will have a mandate to really finally make it. And I think Ukraine could be a wonderful opportunity, not necessarily for me, because I don't know that it'll be a portfolio investor opportunity. And I'm too old and it's too late in my life to do more private equity and real estate and things like that. Too hard, too much work and too much traveling. But for some, if I was, if some young person was asking me, where is there a good opportunity in, a, in emerging markets? I'd say, you know, go to Ukraine, go to Western Ukraine where it's relatively safe and start to make contacts. Because after this war, there's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars of reconstruction money. There's going to be opportunities in real estate and construction, and really is a chance to, to finally turn this country. And they will get on EU. They're already on EU track, and that changes everything. When a country gets on EU track in Eastern Europe, things really change, usually, not always. But the example of Romania, where we've made uh, very successful investments is a great example of how the EU track keeps pulling them, even when it's their instinct to start doing things the old way. The people won't have it. The people will stand up and say, no, we want to be in the EU. We want to live like they do in Poland and like, like they do in Germany. So, so I think Ukraine, after the war, could be one of the great stories. I'm not sure I'll still be actively managing money, but we'll see. I hope so, because I think it could end. Let's hope it ends soon enough. That, that, uh, I'm optimistic about yeah. it. Okay. What's a resource you'd recommend for our listeners? You know, I really hate to say it, because I really am not a fan of, of Elon, but I have to say right now, Twitter is, you know, it's a, it's a source of real-time information. And if you follow the right people, it's just so, like, incredible. It's an incredible tool and resource. It depends on, you know, I, obviously I see a lot of things about Russia, Ukraine, and since I'm following the war. But, you know, in any, in any area that you're interested in, you know, you can find people post great ideas, great investment thesis. I bought Facebook at 100 bucks because I read this brilliant thesis about it. Somebody just posted on Twitter who runs a fund and he... He was bullish on Facebook and explained it. It was it was just right there. Yeah. So I like that. And, you know, obviously, uh, Bloomberg is great. That's all that really comes no, to mind at, at the moment. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, my number one hope for the next 12 months is that this war comes to an end. This insane war comes to an end in a way where, you know, Ukraine is left to be a full country that it was before and that Russia goes back to, you know, reverses some of the, the track that they've been on for the last few years. I can't make that happen. My goal in investing is with my Russian positions is to hang on, make sure my investors have a chance to recover their money when this is all over, and to continue to find value in the rest of Eastern Europe and enjoy the what looks like a very good opportunity there. Well... Listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, 
Just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Harvey, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A.E. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I love talking about my mistakes. And if you don't obsess over your mistakes, you're not a real investor. Now that, those are great parting <laughs> words. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.